we are on the passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000. So, I didn't plan it, but the Lord works all these things together for his glory. We'll culminate the sermon by taking the Lord's Supper together, and hopefully you'll stop by the compassion table on your way out and consider sponsoring a child. I love these ministries that not only take care of the children's physical needs, but their spiritual needs as well. And Compassion is one of those ministries. Samaritan's Purse. We do Operation Christmas uh, Child. They do a wonderful job of following up with the kids and, and discipling them, making sure they know the gospel. And that... Um, They have greater needs than their physical needs. At the same time, if we just tell people, hey, you just need Jesus, and then don't take care of their physical needs, what what good is that? James says that to us as a rebuke. If you say, hey, be warm, be fed, you know, praying for you, and you don't help in a tangible way, then where is the love of Christ? Christ tangibly met our needs on the cross. He, he gave his life. And so, if you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, you're very familiar with the story. But I want you to see the story with fresh eyes this morning. We've been saying the last few months that unless you put yourself in the shoes of the original audience, you'll miss the main point of the Bible passage. And because in America food is abundantly available for most of us, we'll miss the point, we'll miss the significance that Jesus fed an entire crowd and how desperately people in parts of the world need food. That it becomes their existence, getting up in the morning and wondering, where is that next meal going to come from? Much of our labor is spent on food. Amen. 15% is the average family budget. Um, For some of you who have more kids than others, that could get as high as a third of your family budget on food. And I see some heads nodding. And food prices have been going up. Yet, in other parts of the world, people wake up every day not knowing where they're going to get food. For most of human history, most of your energy was spent trying to get food. You can think of it this way. You work hard to grow food so you can eat it, so you have the fuel to get up in the morning and grow food, make food, gather food. Uh, You watch those nature shows about animals, and they're like the predator, if it expends too much energy trying to catch its prey and doesn't catch its prey, it won't have any energy to go after prey. So the daily struggle to exist revolves around fueling these machines, these bodies that we live in. They, they need fuel. 
Modern technology has diminished our appreciation of just how much our daily existence depends on our daily bread. We are Americans. When we are hungry, we eat. And when we're not hungry, we eat. (laughs) It's difficult for us to understand what living conditions were like in first century Palestine. But we saw the video and realized that those living conditions exist even today around the world. One-ninth of the world population is chronically undernourished or malnourished. One-ninth of the world's population. And don't think that it's our neighbors across the seas. This goes on around us. Down in Lancaster, Palmdale, Bakersfield, children wake up hungry. They, they shouldn't have to. Um, parents wrapped up in the drug culture leave their kids without food constantly. And it's not just that modern technology has made it easier for us to find food, um, though some of our modern farming techniques is now, are now creating food that isn't particularly good for us. So we have the other problem. We have plenty of food, but the cheap food's killing us. Diabetes epidemic in our nation. Um, Neurodegenerative uh, disorders, cancer, the things we haven't seen in the numbers that we're seeing them in. And so for many of you, and my family included, I've been recently diagnosed as pre-diabetic. You're like, what? But if your body's not converting uh, carbohydrate into glucose, then there's not much you can do about it. So we're trying to figure out what it is I can eat. I've been losing weight, which isn't really what I want to do. I know some of you are like, stop complaining. But (laughs) I'm going to waste away to nothing here. So you have the other problem of, well, there's plenty of food to eat, but not all of it is what we should be eating. Food is a big deal. Frankly, I'm kind of tired of food being a big deal. I'd like to just get up in the morning, put something in, in my stomach, and move on to the things I wanted to accomplish in life. Instead of wondering and guessing, is this going to hurt my stomach? Is this going to make me feel lousy the rest of the day? And so, on some level, I guess I can commiserate with those who are struggling to find food at all. So when Jesus comes and feeds a crowd, 5,000 men plus women and children, so conservative estimate, 20,000, from five loaves and two fish, and you bet it was the best food they've ever eaten, because when Jesus turned water into wine, what did the wine steward say? Wow, you saved the best for last. They wanted this every day. I, I, I get it on some level. But on another level, I don't get it because I've never been starving. I've never wondered what my next meal was going to be. We've got Costco. <laughs> That's how we feed 5,000. 
Every month, my wife makes that trip down to Bakersfield and hits Costco, Winco, Trader Joe's, um, probably missing a couple. You just make the rounds, and you fill those cupboards, and they're, they're full for a month. And then that last week of the month where you're kind of down to the leftovers, you, you start complaining, oh, is this all we have left? And where's, she's like, just wait, I'll make the trip. And how quickly we complain and grumble, like the Israelites in the wilderness. What, manna again? So keep this in mind as we read the story. You'll better understand why the people were clamoring for Jesus to be their king. Wow, if we could eat like this every day, that would be amazing. And he's healing all their sicknesses. I mean, this really impacted me in a huge way this week. Boy, if Jesus could just feed my belly every day and I wouldn't get sick. Those two things right there, you could be my king. And they, they wanted to take him by force, the scriptures say, and make him king. Be our king. Free food and free health care. Hmm. <laughs> I'll vote for you. Not much has changed. And we laugh about it, but these are serious concerns for those who don't have food or don't have good health. That becomes all-consuming. So let me set up the story here. Luke chapter 9, verse 12. It says, Now the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to him, Okay, so what's going on? Remember, he had sent the twelve out to teach and to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And then they came back to report to him. And Jesus was going to take them aside. And the crowd heard that they were going to be leaving Capernaum. And the crowd followed them. And Jesus didn't send them away. And he says, I'll teach them and I'll heal their diseases. And then nightfall is approaching. And maybe after going out and teaching and having Jesus' authority to cast out demons and heal the sick, the twelve got a little cocky. And they command Jesus to send the crowd away. Send the crowd away, they said, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat for Here we are in a desolate place. We know from one of the other gospel writers they were in Bethsaida. We're not exactly sure where that town was. Bethsaida means house of fish. Probably a small fishing village on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. But no uh, Motel 6 and no Costco nearby. Where is this enormous crowd going to sleep? And where are they going to find food? So send them away so they have time to get to a city. And Jesus is the one who's in charge. He'll give the commands. And he said to them, you give them something to eat. How do you like that? To put you in your place. After, again, going out and being able to cast out demons and heal the sick, they were getting a little cocky. All right, 
Take it up a notch. That's what good teachers do when their students start to get a little too cocky. Give them a little bit harder assignment. You give them something to eat. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. We hear in one of the other gospel accounts, one of them saying, uh, 200 denarii would not be enough money to feed all these people. 200 denarii, that's about eight months wages. So we know, we know the apostles carried money. They had a treasurer. It was Judas, probably poor choice. Uh, they didn't know, though. So they're saying, even if we used all of the money that we have, we, we wouldn't be able to feed all of these people. Boy, that'll put them back in their place. Let's remind them who really has the power here. He gave them uh, an impossible task. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. Oh, I wish I knew what they were saying as they were breaking up the crowd. Like, what, you know, what is he going to do? Where is he going to get the food? Or by this time, they'd seen so many miracles that maybe the anticipation was palpable, the excitement. And so they have them all sit down. One of the other writers mentions they sat down on the green grass so we know what time of year this was because like Tehachapi, Israel only gets grass for a few weeks. Hope you enjoyed it. It'll be gone by the end of this week with this little heat wave coming in. So, Golden Hills, here we come. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he, he blessed them and broke them. Boy, what does that remind you of? Lord's Supper. He gave thanks, broke them, broke the bread, and kept giving pieces to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. That's amazing. They ate as much as they could hold. And they were satisfied. When Jesus feeds you, you're satisfied. The literal pointing us to the spiritual. He literally fed them bread, but they're going to be hungry the next day after they digest that food. And he's going to offer them the bread that satisfies you eternally. They collected the leftover pieces and there was 12 baskets full. They had more left over than what they started with. One commentator said, this was the greatest miracle since the creation of the heavens and earth. When God created everything out of nothing, here's Jesus, God in human flesh, creating food. He has that kind of authority. And if you were there and if I was there, we would probably respond the way the crowd responded. I'm coming back tomorrow. 
for another meal. And again, because we don't have to work that hard at getting our food, this miracle must have been incredible on so many different levels because here's a people who know their Old Testament and know that God provided their ancestors manna in the wilderness. And that a Messiah would come and he would usher in a time of peace and prosperity and plenty. And so though many were not ready to recognize him as Messiah and certainly not as God in human flesh, a king that could feed them daily with this kind of food was very alluring. And we read in some of the other Gospels that they wanted to grab him and make him king, force him to be king. I got to thinking this week as I was preparing the sermon, what do we really need for life on this planet? What do we really need for life on this planet? What are the essentials? The older I get, the more I find myself yearning for a simple life. Things that were important to me when I was younger just aren't that important anymore. Or I'm starting to understand that it's vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Life gets harder as you get older and you realize if you just had a roof over your head that didn't leak, nutritious food, doesn't have to be gourmet, just healthy food, and in my case, food that my body won't reject, clean water, a general sense of healthiness, some vitality, uh, peace, safety. I could go to bed at night and not be afraid. Companionship, friendship, love. I think I'd be a pretty happy man. These seem like such simple things to ask for, and yet they can be so elusive. And we can spend our time chasing after things not on this list and telling ourselves, yeah, those are all good, but that, that's a given. I, I deserve those things at a minimum. But if I also had A, B, and C, then I would really be happy. But I'm pretty sure that if I just had these things, I would be satisfied with life. And what about you? What would be on your list? Can you say amen to the list I gave you? I think Hilda would say amen. The girl in the video. Food, water, peace, safety, companionship, love. These simple things that we can offer the world as Christians that we take for granted but would mean everything to someone else. But I'd also have to tell Hilda, don't think that once you get all these things, you'll be satisfied. Let us tell you from somebody who's been there already, who have our daily needs met, that the human heart has a problem. We're never satisfied. We're never content. 
we're prone to discontentment, ingratitude. If only I had more. And so she would need to know the gospel. She would need to know that only Jesus can fill your deepest longings. And only Jesus can save you from that discontentment. It's more than discontentment because at the root of it, the human heart is inclined to say, I know better than God what I need and what I deserve. I want to be God. Adam and Eve had all those things on the list. And they had them perfectly untouched by the curse. Perfect food, water, love, companionship, meaning in life, safety, no fear, no shame, no guilt. And they were tempted to want more. So if they didn't fare well, don't think for a second if you had everything on your list checked off that you would do any better. And we've inherited that sin nature. They were tempted to give up everything on the list to sacrifice the most important components of life because they valued the most important component of life the least. What is that? Well, it was missing from my list. A right relationship with God. That's the most important thing. If you have that, you get the total package. They wanted all the rest without God being their God. They didn't recognize God as the source of life. Instead, they saw him as their competition. If you love and trust and obey, if you worship God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you get all the rest. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Adam and Eve were willing to sacrifice their relationship with God, the source of life and true happiness, in order to be their own gods. They wanted the right to have the final authority over their own lives. That is, that is our chief problem. At the end of the day, we want the last word. We want to be able to interpret our world, our reality, what's good, what's not good, what'll make me happy, what won't make me happy on my terms. Even when we hear from the word of God and we say we're Christians and we believe in the word of God and we believe it's God's word and we believe it's the final authority. If you're honest with yourself, there's something in you that makes you even after you read the scriptures go. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Let me think about that for a second. And where we agree with God, we let him have authority in our life. That's not authority. The test of authority is, can you submit when you don't agree or when you don't understand? 
Because the one you're submitting to, you recognize, is more powerful and more wise than yourself. We need to have hearts that say, God, I don't understand this fully, what you're telling me, but I trust you. Who is your counselor? Who is your teacher? Where do you get your wisdom from? You're the source of all wisdom, all truth, all knowledge. God's grace allows us to have some of the elements of the Garden of Eden before the fall. God's common grace. I have beautiful family. I have relationship. I have friendships. Wonderful friends here in the church. We do have food. We do have water. We do have shelter. I do have a relative sense of peace and safety, especially if I turn the news off. And yet everything is tainted. I I shared my food issues with you. And and you have your own as well. And you have those days where you're like, I finally feel good today. Why can't every day feel like this? We ask each other, how was your day? Was it a good day or a bad day? Aren't they all good days in Christ? And yet, there's pain, there's suffering, there's, there's fear of loss. There's broken relationships. At any given time as a pastor, there's usually at least one person who's not happy with me in the church. And just a week ago, we were best friends. People get upset, and it's easy to take it out on the church and I'm the most upfront character, and this happens a lot. And you're like, God, why does it have to be this way? And then the immortal words of Rodney King, can't we all just get along? (laughs) Why are there arguments inside the church? Why are there arguments inside families and marriages and between family members and spouses and Everything's tainted. We get enough of paradise that we crave more of it. But we think that if we just had paradise, then we'd be satisfied. But learn from the Word of God, learn from Adam and Eve that they had paradise, but they didn't necessarily want God. And so, no paradise. Train yourself to stop saying, if I just had this, or if we could just fix this, or if my bank account just got to here, then I'll be happy. I I guarantee that day won't come. It won't come. And you'll spend all your days on this earth waiting for happiness waiting for gratitude to just happen to you. It's a choice to recognize what we have in Christ and who we have and how amazing that is to have a right relationship 
with the creator of the universe. Everything else is gravy. And I know that's hard if you're suffering currently. That's not to belittle your suffering. There's great needs out there, and Jesus cares deeply about your needs. The Jews like to argue from the lesser to the greater. So if Jesus took care of your greatest need, how much more does he care about your smaller needs? It's just that we've made the smaller needs the biggest needs in our life. The point is that God is a source of everything we need. Yes, we need these essentials for life now, but there is no life in the ultimate sense without Jesus. You know the bumper sticker? No Jesus, no... Is it peace or is it life? Probably peace. I'll change it to life. It works. If you know Jesus, then you know life. If, if there's no N-O Jesus, there's, there's no life. There's no peace. There's no happiness. So, the crowd is ready to make Jesus their king because he miraculously provided bread and healed their diseases. Jesus comes back a second time and, and won't offer them that kind of bread. If we go to John chapter 6, you see the way the story unfolds and ends. And I encourage you to read all of John 6 this week. So the next day, and by the way, in between the two days is the night Jesus walks on water. So he tells the twelve to get in the boat, go back to Capernaum. And Jesus says, I'm going to go off on my own and pray. And then a storm hits. And uh, this time Jesus isn't in the boat Last time a storm hit while they were at sea, Jesus was in the boat asleep. Remember, they woke him up and Jesus calmed the storm. This time he's not in the boat. Again, little by little, the teacher putting them in more and more difficult situations. So now what are you going to do? And they see uh, apparition out on the waters. And they think it's a ghost, but it's Jesus. And um, he calls out to them and says, do not be afraid. And Peter says, if it's really you, command me to come out of the boat to you. And Peter walks on water uh, for a few moments. And he takes his eyes off Jesus, literally, and begins to sink. It is there on the boat that Peter first professes that Jesus is, is the Christ. He's the Son of God. So we pick up the story the next day and the crowd saw that some of the boats were missing. So they get into the boats. They go to the other side of the sea and they find Jesus and they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? I would have loved for Jesus to say, um, I walked <laughs> and I beat you guys here.
And he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite messianic title. He uses it more than any other title to help them understand that Messiah would be born as a son of man. They knew his background. In fact, as they start getting agitated with him, you'll read in John chapter 6 that they say, we know you, we know who your mother and your father is. Remember the controversy surrounding his, his birth. They were having trouble accepting that this Jesus could be the Messiah. And so, they ask him, what work do we need to do? What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? What do we have to do to get this bread that doesn't perish? Tell us and we'll do that kind of work. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. One of the clearest passages in the Bible, that salvation is by faith and not by works. What work do we have to do to please God? He says, believe in him in whom he has sent. Believe in Jesus and the work Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's the works you need to do to please God. By grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man may boast. The crowd says, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Okay, he just fed 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. You see the hardness of their heart, the stubbornness of your heart. And what did Nathan teach us about parables? Jesus taught in parables as judgment for people not believing when Jesus taught in plain, simple truths. So he's about to give them a parable about bread. Parables take something in the material world and cast it alongside something in the spiritual world so that we understand spiritual things. The word literally in the Greek parable, para bole, para alongside of, balo, to cast, to cast alongside of. So he's going to take this literal eating of bread and cast it alongside the spiritual, hey, you guys need bread all right different kind of bread. And they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They're, quote, they're quoting the word of God at the word of God incarnate. It's quite ironic. Oh, really? You're quoting scripture to me. 
Well, let me tell you about that passage. Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. Moses didn't feed your forefathers. Yes, he was the vehicle through whom God led his people. But the manna just showed up every morning, right? It came down from heaven. It's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They're still thinking literal bread. And so they're like, well, look, you fed us one day. Moses fed us 40 years every day for 40 years. So they say to him, Lord, not in the sense of God, but Lord, sir. I think some of your translations, in fact, say, sir. Just a title of respect. Always give us this bread. They still want that that daily physical bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He uses that name for God, I am. The name God revealed to Moses in the desert. Yahweh, I am. In the Greek, it's ego, a me. I am the bread of life. I am the bread. Stop looking for bread. I'm the bread. This is what you need to live. You need God. Nobody's ever made these claims before or since in human history. For all those out there who say Jesus never claimed to be God, here is one of the many times he did. I am the bread of life. That is a claim to deity. You can't live without me. There's only one who sustains life, and it's God. And he uses the covenant name of God, I am. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Because of their hardness of heart, though, Jesus is going to take the parable up a notch. And if you keep reading John chapter 6, he says, You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. This does not mean that the bread and the wine turn into the flesh and blood of Jesus. He's teaching in parables. He's teaching a metaphor. He's making it difficult for them to come to him because when he made it easy for them to come to him, they wouldn't come. So now he's making it difficult out of judgment. So he says, metaphorically, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. But he says it directly and they're disgusted by the thought. Others were perplexed. What could this possibly mean? How are we going to eat his flesh and drink his blood? That's forbidden by the Old Testament, of course. And just gross. 
He was alluding to the fact that his body and blood would be given as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And that we must receive Jesus by faith so that we can be nourished by him spiritually unto eternal life. Crowd goes away confused and disgusted and disappointed because they wanted free bread in the temporal sense. Oh, Jesus was offering free bread. Cost us nothing, cost him his life. God knows better than we do what we really need for life. He gave us his own son so we can have life. Believing Jesus, following Jesus, trusting Jesus, loving Jesus, obeying Jesus, letting Jesus expose our sins and receiving his forgiveness is life. In John 6, 61, it says, Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He's like, wait till you see my ascension. You think think this is going to be tough to grapple with. may have been an allusion to the upcoming transfiguration on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So that's the big question then for us today. It's a big question we have to answer every day and every moment of every day. Jesus asks the twelve... So, you don't want to go away also, do you? You don't want to go away also, do you? Whenever we are tempted to sin, whenever we are tempted to trust our own wisdom, whenever we're tempted to ignore Scripture, when we're tempted to stop repenting, when we're tempted to not humble ourselves, when we're tempted to give up on a relationship because it's just too hard. When we're tempted to stop serving because it's too hard. When we're tempted to stop attending church because no one there really cares about me. When we're tempted to stop being a Christian, we need to answer this question. You do not want to go away also, do you? And the right answer is the one that Simon Peter gives. This humble answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else would we go? I know you're going to have days where you're tempted. Moments where you're going to have tempted. To not do things Jesus' way. It's just not working. I, I can't be loving anymore. It's too hard. This relationship's not working. I can't be humble. I can't lay down my life anymore. 
I can't do it anymore, God. I, I, I don't have this energy or the will to serve. I, I can't love unbelievers and share the gospel with them. But like Simon Peter, we need to say, but where would we go? Do you really think, like Adam and Eve, it would be better if we departed from God? Do you really think that would make things better if you could set the rules and you could set the agenda? How has that ever turned out for you? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? If your answer is the same as Peter's, I implore you today to live like it and to think like it and to worship like it and to love like it. Don't give up on God. Jesus didn't give up on you. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Don't just hang in there. Put all that you have into pursuing Christ. And I guarantee you'll be satisfied. Oh, I don't know what the food will look like on your table and I don't know what your job situation will look like and all these other tangible things. But I know this much, if you pursue Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will be satisfied. And if you don't, you'll always be longing for more. For those who can say amen to this, that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you believe he is the bread of life, you believe that if you don't feed on him, you'll never be satisfied, then join us around the table this morning. We teach that the uh, crackers, the bread, represent the body of Christ, and the grape juice, we serve grape juice instead of wine, represent his actual blood that he shed for us on the cross that doesn't turn into his body and blood. It reminds us of what he did. Uh, Ushers, please come forward and serve us.